A citizen or an organization or an NGO should be utilizing FOI as part of their job. It's unfortunately often t- still too much of a kind of an, a war of attrition rather than simply a, a requesting mechanism. Welcome to the second episode of Adventures in Information, a podcast about what crawls out from under the rock with me, Ross McMahon. Thank you to everyone who listened to episode one. If you haven't heard it yet, go back to iTunes or adventuresininformation.com to hear a potted history of one parent's objection to providing a government department with information about his children and how it led to an interesting FOI battle. In the second episode, I'm talking to Gavin Sheridan, who will be well known to many people as a journalist and as somebody who has been active in FOI, so active in fact that he found himself in the Supreme Court caught in a pitched battle between NAMA and information regulators. He recently launched Right to Know, a timely civic body with an information mission. So, Gavin, freedom of information appears to present to me, particularly at the moment, a significant opportunity for journalism, but also an equally or even greater challenge. Now, you wear a number of hats and we might have time to have you wear some of those during this chat, but the latest hat you're wearing to me seems to represent the opportunity and the challenge very well. Uh, and that is the Right to Know organisation that you are now involved in. Could you tell me, please, what is Right to Know? So Right to Know is kind of, it's born out of a lot of the work uh, that I've done uh, along with a good few other people now over the last five or six years. And I suppose it's kind of an evolution of a lot of the, the work and experimentation that went on with another website with the, with the story that I and um, that we started I started with um Mark Coughlin back in 2009 um and I suppose it's it was really it really came down to um you know as you said I have a lot of different hats on and to some extent FOI can be quite time consuming so I kind of reached the point where well, should we should we try and escalate what the story that I was into something more systematic, more more organised. Because at the end of the day, it was just a blog run by one by two guys. I think, as as, as a minister said about us before, um, and I suppose we wanted to see could we make it into something more structured and and maybe with some with some money in the bank as well to try and push unashamedly really an agenda around uh, access to information as a as a human right. There are some similar organisations abroad and in other European countries, for example. Have you taken inspiration from them as well as this being an evolution from the story.ie? Yeah, well, I suppose there's there's a few different. Like I've 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 uh, I, I know quite a few of the different organisations, um, particularly Access Access Info Europe, which is based down in Madrid, which has been pushing uh, the FOI um, agenda for for quite a long time now across Europe, and I think. I look at organizations like that. I also look at, at organizations like the EFF uh, in the US, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or I look at organizations like Digitalize Ireland here here at home. And you look at there, there's different there's different classes or types of, of kind of not for profits or, or non governmental organizations. But to some extent, we're trying to exp- see could you navigate two different paths at the same time. One one being something around. Uh, I suppose uh, an, uh, uh, an organization that pushes a specific objective while also possibly having a, a publication arm that also publishes uh, information that's obtained through FOI and perhaps initiates its own 
uh, processes and investigations into into uh, various things that you would obtain through access to information uh, mechanisms. So yeah, there are there are there are a good few organisations, and you know you could also look at what you know. I know some of the guys who are involved with the Ferret in Scotland, which is a, a, a distinctly investigative journalism organisation that's funded by the public. But also you have organisations in Europe like um, uh, uh, Dossier in Austria or uh, Corrective in in Germany, which are again are other more focused on crowdfunding or subscription based investigative journalism organizations. But, you know, to me, you know, there's this, there's this natural cycle or, or virtuous cycle that exists between obtaining or, or pushing for better FOI laws or a better interpretation of, of transparency under FOI laws that, that feeds very well into the, the remit of an investigative journalism organization as well. So it's an interesting thing to try and experiment with to see, is there a, is there a commonality that you could have between an organization that tries to push both, that one feeds into the other? And you, you say on the website that uh, one of the main aims is to, um, to educate or assist people, including journalists and I think members of the public at large, in accessing information, in vindicating the right to access information. I suppose that will be part of what you're getting at exactly so i mean we've already i mean even since we since we announced uh, right to know back in march i've been trying to assist you know seven or eight different organizations or individuals or or, or citizen groups on their own foi uh, um problems and uh, there's there, oftentimes so there's a there's a frequency to the, to the nature of the problems and they're, they're often the same things keep coming up over and over again to some extent but also there's there's larger problems that exist around um, how, uh, not just about education around how citizens either know or don't know what their rights under under various laws are, but to some extent it's on the other side of the equation sometimes as well, where, where public officials don't necessarily know what what the rights of citizens are as well. And I suppose we'd like to try to address that that imbalance because in Ireland, unfortunately, there isn't any really clear organisation that's on the government side that actually whose job it is really to inform the public. Ostensibly, you could argue that should be the commissioner, the information commissioner's office, but they don't really have that mandate. And then you can also argue that it should be the central policy unit in the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform who have that mandate, but also they don't really take that mantle up very well either. This, I would argue that, that neither of them really broached this issue around educating the public around what their rights are under the Acts. And I think that's different in other countries. In, in Scotland, for example, they would have staff in the Information Commissioner's Office whose job it is to go around the country and explain the law to people and how they, how they can utilise it. And I think that, that piece of the puzzle is slightly missing in Ireland. Would it be too cynical to think there's a reason Ireland. I think possibly. I don't think there was any. I don't think there's been any kind of uh, what you might call a deliberate policy. I think it seems to have just happened uh, out of just the way things evolved since since the law was brought in, since it was enacted in '97 and became and became active in '98. I don't think there's been any kind of deliberate way where we're gonna we're gonna do it this way and and we're gonna make it difficult for people. I think that's just the way things evolved. Um, and I think you know the, the the main job now seems to be with the commissioner seems to be. Well, we're not really there to assist you, but we're going to tell you what your rights are to some extent on our website. And then when you, when your really main interface with us is when it comes to appeals, and then with the department, it's really well. Here's the law, and here's the bodies that you can ask for information from. But really, it's a resource for public officials, really, about how they respond to requests. So really, there's this kind of gap that I think just kind of just evolved. I'm not sure it was any, anything deliberate. I think it 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 just has ended up that that now citizens uh, don't really have any particular 
uh, avenue to pursue about how they would uh, educate themselves about how to how they can how they can use the laws themselves. You've said FOI is time consuming. Obviously, there's a cost to doing it and to running an organisation like Right to Know, which is fundraising to support its work. Is that fundraising aimed at making FOI requests and helping other people to make FOI requests alone, or are other activities envisaged? What we're trying to do is is address an already kind of existing um, need of the people who who supported the story that I over the last over the last five years, and we wanted to put a formal structure on that. So there's kind of a couple of objectives. One is we would like, uh, as the organisation evolves, to to publish guidance and and assistance to you know, that, that help citizens utilise their rights under the FOI Act or under the Access to Information and Environment Regulations or under the Reuse of Public Sector uh, uh, Regulations. But, you know, that's not just one, that's just one element of it, I think. I think long-term, there's also the idea that, to some extent, the, the right to know itself as an organisation could could end up in a situation where it is requesting information that, that the state doesn't want to give. And that's that might end up in a in a in a legal battle. And you know, I take a lot of inspiration from the work that the, that the, the guys in Digitalized Ireland did over the last uh, nine or ten years. That ultimately ended up with the um, the data retention directive in Europe being struck down by the Court of Justice. And I think there's a certain uh, there's a certain um, thing that's to some extent missing in the in the Irish civic space, which is sometimes when the Information Commissioner rules. The information commissioner might be wrong, or you might believe that they have reached an incorrect conclusion in the commissioner's decision. And the logical step to follow from that is that you pursue a high court appeal if you believe that the commissioner has erred in law. Now, usually, what happens, the only, the, what normally happens in situations in Ireland is because the process is quite expensive. If you lose at the commissioner stage, you really have no option. You just accept the commissioner's decision. It's only when the commissioner is, is kind of fighting to some extent on the on the requester's behalf or agrees with the logic of the requester that they end up in court against a, a public body, which is what happened in one of my cases under the under the uh, environmental regulations with NAMA. That's kind of it's kind of not an ideal situation. What really should be happening is that to some extent the civic spa- civic society should be able to, if they disagree with a, a, a commissioner decision, should have the ability to pursue that uh, issue through the courts um, in order to try and, again, vindicate the rights of the public uh, to access information. Uh, for a long-term objective, you know, this is not this is not short-term things about specific organizations necessarily or about specific types of documents. It's about what's the long-term uh, future of citizens' rights in relation to accessing information from, from public bodies. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a 5, 10, 15, 20-year uh, process. Um, I mean, that's really the time horizons you have to think on. So when we're thinking about funding uh, now and saying, look, we, we need to start building a foundation of something that can pursue these things, that's kind of what we have in mind, is that this, this is going to take a long time, and it's a long time horizon we're kind of thinking about. You would see then right to know having a role in the development of FOI law and how that law is implemented by the state uh, and the Digital Rights Ireland experience is important. Other countries like the US have a much longer, stronger tradition of specific interest organisations who use FOI to further their campaigns and advocacy. And a byproduct of that is a development of the law on FOI, which benefits everyone. But I sense this isn't an academic interest on your part or on the part of Right to Know, that you have a very particular 
application of access to information in mind? There's a whole kind of sector in, in, in Irish society, which is not just individual citizens or, or small rights groups who are interested in, in their local area. There's also a whole layer of Irish society that is, is charities, it's other not-for-profits, it's other NGOs in Ireland. And, and a lot of those organizations, in fact, you could probably argue all of them, all of them have access to information rights and they have access to information problems. Or else they haven't ever filed an FY request or they haven't been unsuccessful because they're not quite sure how to do it. And if you think about it, when you're dealing, when you're dealing with access to information as a frame, it's kind, of, it's kind of very important, in my view, for all of those organizations. Because if you're a, if you're a charity or a, an NGO and you're interacting with government either for funding or to advocate for, you know, that resources should be allocated to your particular area of interest, the government often has an information monopoly over, over how resources are being allocated at the moment and how, you know, well, the government will make an argument, we can't do it that way because X, Y, or Z. And, you, and oftentimes you have to take the government's argument on, on its merit or on trust. Now, I would argue that, that information rights, uh, such as they are in Ireland, should be used as a device across the board by, by not-for-profits and by NGOs in whatever sector that they're operating in in order to try and get to the facts of the matter. And that allows for possibly greater evidence-based policy making. It also increases the level of advocacy that those organizations can engage in because they have access to information that, that they can base their, 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 uh, their advocacy on. Without, the, without access to information from, from state bodies themselves, it's quite hard to understand you know, where money is going, how much money is available, what other organizations are getting money, how, how money is being spent by certain state agencies. So to me, kind of access to information as a, as a kind of a, an overarching right and an overarching thing in society is quite important, not just for journalists, it's for, for all of civic society and for citizens at, at large and for the media. When the original Freedom of Information Act was introduced in 1997, there was a concern or suggestion out there that civil servants or politicians would just stop recording things in writing so that it would never exist as a record that could be released using FOI. But in fact, the opposite is sometimes the problem now that there can be so many records held by a state body that formulating requests and going through all the documents released is itself a challenge. I mean, even for myself, I, I, I'm, I still, after five or six years, grapple with, well, what are the types of documents or data that are likely to exist in relation to what I'm looking for? Sometimes, because essentially you're, you're often operating in the dark because I never worked in, 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 a, in a state body. I have no idea what types and nature of, of information that they hold in general. Now, there has been a change under the new act about uh, publication schemes that, that just uh, have started being published since, since April, uh, which are there and designed to help citizens or whoever to try and understand what's the breadth and nature of the information that the public body holds. But oftentimes it's it's kind of it's it's not just down to you. You're kind of you're kind of operating in the dark and you're in the blind and you're you're trying to ask for information that's re that's specific to what you're looking for. And sometimes the public officials will be really helpful, and sometimes it, 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 they just don't know and they're trying to help. And sometimes it it, it can vary, you know, from, depending on which day of the week. Um, so there is problems, but I think the the greater the amount of data that you get, in other words, when the information is digital. It can, it can really help because when you're getting a database, that's really easy to search and find and get to the, to the nub of what you're looking for. And you can do your own analysis against, it, obviously, a spreadsheet. But also if the documents are scanned and, and, and readable, 
and being able to search through them to go, okay, the thing I was, the reason I tried to get this information was for, for to try and understand, you know, a certain decision that was made at a policy level or uh, a certain uh, a meeting that was had about what was discussed at the meeting. You're trying to, to understand the process that was went through for a certain decision or a certain resource allocation. And sometimes when the when the information is made available digitally, you can just you can you can run through it because you're you're looking you're looking for keywords that you know are relevant to what you're interested in. Um, but at the same time, it's still incumbent on the requester at the first outset to be to be reasonably specific in what you're looking for, um, because otherwise you do get overwhelmed a little bit. And certainly, I have you know hundreds of thousands of documents of pages that I've scanned or have it in a digital archive that. I've built up over the years, and you know that's not that's not that's not something everybody is able to build. You work also as a journalist, and in the past, in large media organisations like the Irish Examiner and Storyful, do you think that there is uh, an approach to freedom of information in the newsroom? Does it exist, or what is the approach to it? I think probably not is the answer. I mean, when when we start, when I first started looking at FOI in two thousand nine, um, I was actually in England that I I saw it being done slightly differently, and it was during the MPs' expenses scandal in, in two thousand nine that I went to England and I was at a I was at a conference in London, and I went to a, a seminar on FOI, um, and you know there was you know twenty twenty forty people there, you know a lot of them ordinary citizens with kind of an expert panel on the top uh, of, of various journalists and, and advoc- uh, activists. And I, I remember an old lady, she put up she put up her hand and she said, look, I've got to this stage of my information appeals process. I'm trying to find out why my local council uh, sold a house down the road for me for a pound. And I've got to this point uh, with the council and they're not, they're not releasing the information. And she got this for, she got advice from this expert panel. And I was sitting down in the back of this room kind of going to myself, not only does this, this consistency not necessarily exists to the level that it should in the media in Ireland, but from a citizen level or from a, an activist or, or civic level, this culture simply doesn't exist in Ireland. There is no kind of, I'm going to meet up with other FY people and we're going to discuss our various uh, engagements with, with how we've tried to get information and how it's not working or how it is how it is working or what we've got and what we haven't got, that this culture doesn't really exist in Ireland at the time. So when I got back to Ireland from that trip in 2009, that kind of was the germination of how I started looking at FOI as a thing and, and how the story that I kind of started from that from that process. And really, when you look at the media in, in a newsroom perspective, and it, it kind of largely still is this, uh, this, it is the case now, it's an ad hoc process whereby a journalist will either use a formula, which is how much did the department spend on water last year? How much did they spend on expenses for X, Y, or Z? Or, you know, did the minister get first class flights or second class or business class flights or whatever? That those are kind of, they're easy stories to get. They're easy stories where you, you have a, a, a headline that writes itself. You have a, a 600 word story and you just churn it out. Now, I think that that's, it's, that's its own, that's kind of its own thing. That's something that journalists do. I just don't think that that's, necessarily the right way to do it for me the 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 process that probably should exist and this does exist in other countries you will have you know foi editors in australia who who specialize on this and then try to coordinate efforts within a newsroom in ireland it's still it's still reasonably ad hoc although i think my view would be that there should be a more consistent approach about you know not asking for this for the same not journalists in the same newsroom not asking for the same things from the same bodies over and over again or at least being able to uh, 
learn from the process and when refusals come in that are not justified that the knowledge that should exist in the newsroom about when a a refusal is unjustified that it's shared in the newsroom at a very you know not on an ad hoc level but at some kind of you know editorial level that there's a consistency in, in the approach of a newsroom as a whole about how many FOIs are they filing a week what are what are their objectives what what is the what is the ideal process for doing this and how do they manage the information that's coming in from FOIs in a consistent way, because I was always kind of of the mind that that too many journalists would would uh, get an FOI, write the story, and then throw away the documents afterwards. And I'm like, well, sometimes the documents themselves might be useful for one story, but there's other information in those documents that in a year's time could be useful for something else that, that I come across. And it becomes its own uh, resource in itself for a newsroom. I still weren't, we're not there yet, but I think... You know, I've certainly seen since the new act came in uh, uh, an increase in the number of FOIs uh, being filed by journalists and the number of stories you see now in daily or weekly newspapers that are based on on requests done by journalists has increased certainly in the last uh, two years. And did you have any particular approach to to making requests? I mean, it's interesting you you mentioned the ad hoc approach that's often there, but I mean, I know that in some organisations, I mentioned uh, American NGOs and so on, and I spent a brief amount of time as an intern in one in Washington. And often uh, they had sector-specific FOI requests they would make, but the the actual content of the request, sometimes it could be based on a rumour someone heard or even just wild speculation. Uh, you know, they might guess uh, as to what might be going on. And you mentioned sometimes you have to guess what type of documents might exist or would be recorded by a department. Do you have any approach based on rumour or a story you heard or just something you, you were curious about yourself? Or what is your starting point when making a freedom of information request? Well, we, we would try to, well, it would be a bit of everything, to be honest, but at the, you know, I'd often operate or try to operate from first principles. And the first principles approach for me would be, well, you know, if you're engaging in a long-term FOI process with multiple public bodies, my starting point would be I need lists of things, right? Because that's your next FOI. If you're, if you're, because ad hoc FOIs by nature, you send in the FOI, you wait four weeks, you get a, a, a refusal or an acceptance, you get some documents, and then you might file another FOI based on the information that you've got and so on, Right. One thing that we tried to do with the story that I very early on, and particularly this was relevant under a, a regime that was charging 15 euros per request at the time, was that we would have to maximize the return on investment for that request. And one of the, the techniques that we would always use with those types of requests would be, well, okay, I'd like the, you know, the diary of the Secretary General or the diary of the Minister because that's a list of, of meetings and of appointments and of persons that are discussing policy or involve important people. And the, the natural thing to do with that diary is, to, number one, have it as part of your own archive, but number two, publish it. And number three, read the diary to see, is there, a, um, is there, is there meetings in this diary that I would like to write an FOI about? Uh, and that's one approach. I mean, in in, the, in each of those requests that we we would have filed for the story that I under the old regime, each request would probably contain a, a request for a ministerial diary. It would request a request for any audits carried out by that organisation uh, in the last twelve months, and that wouldn't be the the audits necessarily themselves. It would be a list of the audits or the audit log, 
And then a third thing might be, I'd like to see a list of all the FOI requests that the, that public body has received in the last 12 months, which are essentially three lists. And those lists help me navigate, number one, what other people are asking for so I get a better read on what's going on. Number two, it's like, well, that looks like an interesting audit. I'd like a copy of that. And trying to apply that across multiple – the same would be true of, say, you know, um, management uh, meetings of, the, of a department or – governing body uh, meetings of a, of a university. The minutes of those meetings help me understand, well, what's currently going on in that organization? What are people currently doing? And then you can try and move from there to try and find uh, uh, more uh, information. Now, in a way, you could you could, could describe that as a, as a fishing exercise, and I know public officials sometimes think of it that way. But in another way, it's also an education for me just to try and figure out, look, what is going on? I have no idea. You're starting from blank and you're trying to figure out what's going on. So I think there's other types of requests that you might also engage in, which are very specific going, I've heard, or somebody has emailed me or somebody has told me in a pub that something that X, Y, or Z happened. And that then might be a specific request that you, you file looking for specific information related to that very specific issue. So yeah, you, you can have different types of requests that you're, you're filing at, uh, all the time. It just depends on, on what you're after. And how do you find the public sector attitude to FOI? I think to some extent, there's a culture that I would describe overarching as being somewhat defensive by default, being somewhat secretive by default. Uh, also, erring on the side of caution is a common feature. And what that means is public officials will all, almost always uh, err on the side of caution when they're releasing because they'll say, well, I'm going to redact this or I'm going to apply an exemption uh, like commercial sensitivity or, or, or something without necessarily going through the process of whether they should do that or not. They just might apply it by default without going through, you know, well, is this commercially sensitive? And then they might forget to do the public interest test that they're supposed to do under certain uh, exemptions. And then I get a reply back saying, well, well, we've given you this information, but we're not giving you this uh, bits of it because of these reasons. And you kind of get it and you go, well, you you haven't done what you're supposed to do under the act and i'm 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 not blaming you but this is what you should have done i've had two examples of this just in the last two weeks and it's kind of frustrating to to some extent because then you end up in this vicious circle of i'm going to have to appeal that even though i know they're wrong i'm going to have to go through the process pay the 30 euros for the internal review i'm going to have to pay the 50 euros to get to the commissioner and i know what the commissioner is going to say because i've done this precise appeal before about it, this exact issue. Um, and the commissioner has found in my favor in the past. And you end up kind of, and, and that that's not just bad for me, that's bad for the public sector because it's creating all this extra work that's actually unnecessary. It's it's creating this inertia and it's and it's deepening a culture of, of defensiveness that I don't think is necessary either. I mean, it's, it's, culture is a hard thing to change. And, you know, to some extent, it's not going to change by, by me shouting down the phone at anybody either. It's going to change, hopefully, by people saying, look, this is the way it's, it, this is the ideal way it should be done. And, and if it had been done this way, we would have saved a lot of time. But hopefully, over time, things improve. I just I can't speak to whether the, the culture of secrecy will improve. Uh, I, think, I think the introduction of fees in 2003 was a huge step backwards over the, the, the progress that may have been made over the previous five years. Because it, it, it introduced this idea that uh, that it was an extra, that it was some kind of luxury, that actually it's, it isn't a core part of, of what uh, public bodies do. It's more of kind of a, a, an added bonus, whereas to me, 
it is a core part of what the function of, of, of public institutions are. Because if they're not there to serve the public, and if the information that they have is not accessible by and large to the public, then what's the point of living in the country at all? Because to me, it's like, it's such a fundamental part of how I interact in my daily life, uh, how I interact with, with fellow citizens and how I interact with the state. If I don't know uh, or can't inform my fellow citizens about what's going on, then we're kind of living in the dark between elections. When it's kind of, it seems like a very weak form of democracy if we don't know. And the people who might change that culture where the, the wrong culture exists are politicians and ministers. Do you think that they have any interest in doing so? I'm not sure a minister can click his fingers and say, OK, now it's a new era of, of transparency and accountability and we're going we're, we're gonna to throw doors, throw open the doors of, of, of bureaucracy and it's, it's all going to be uh, sunshine and rainbows. I don't, I don't ever see that happening uh, overnight. But there is a sense that that it can be uh, it can be led by some kind of political vision around the citizens uh, are engaged in uh, voting every five years uh, in general elections. We elect officials, and those officials should lead and to some extent lead by example, and also be able to say to the people who who work in the public sector that we're not the the, the citizens are not the enemy. And that that there's good, reasonable, sound basis for uh, having more transparent systems in place, because number one, it reduces maladministration. It's 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 proven to do so. It helps reduce uh, corruption. It improves record keeping. If the objective is led, if the objective is led from an organisational level to say, this is what we're going to do, we're going to implement it, and we're going to execute it. I mean. I think that idea that that these are achievable goals, and you know the argument that all, uh, that is often made, and I've had these discussions myself with, with public officials, is look, we have a million other things to be doing. This is just another thing that we have to do, and we can't really do it because we don't have the resources. I would say yes, that that is a reasonable argument, but there's also reasonable arguments on the other side that there are lots of benefits internally and externally to applying better records management better uh, systems, including IT systems that, that facilitate the uh, the uh, managing of requests that save time for everybody, um, the, the digitization of, of, of uh, filing systems and, and all that kind of stuff, that all helps, uh, you know, it, a lot of to me is about workflows and processes that can, that can solve some of these problems. And that, that helps address these resource issues that the public sector also has. In the, the 2011 general election, Labour made a a reasonably significant point about transparency and openness, which they followed through on in the 2014 Act. Do you think that the Act has changed things? Well, they did and they didn't. Um, When the Programme for Government came out in in, in 2011 and Howland became the Minister for Public Expansion Reform under the new department that was formed uh, out of the Department of Finance, which previously had competency for, for the FOI Act and its implementation, um, the promise was we would revert the, the law to you know what it was pre two thousand and three amendment uh, that Fianna Fáil had brought in uh, after the two thousand and two election. Um, that was that promise wasn't kept. Um, uh, the elements of it were that if the promise had been kept, all the fees would have been dropped, and they weren't. Um, the upfront fee was, but the appeals fees were were reduced, but remain in place. I think that it was it was if I was to give it a score, I'd give it maybe a six, six or seven out of ten, as a as a, an attempt at reform of 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 what of the existing regime, 
197-2003 Act, which just simply wasn't working. Um, it wasn't working in, for anybody. Um, and I think the, the new Act is an improvement. You can't deny that. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for better. Um, and, you know, I, I meet lots of FOI activists uh, all over the world all the time. And I see how laws are being uh, used in other in other jurisdictions, and I see other laws that are superior to ours as well, in 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 law and in implementation. And it, it, to me, there's always there's always room for improvement when it comes to this kind of thing. And it's 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 a never ending thing. There's no there's no like this kind of this these arguments are are perennial to some extent. So I think that the new act the new act is is better. But I think there's a lot that can be done to improve it. We still have a lot of, of variables under the law which have given, uh, you know, uh, special exemptions to specific public bodies. We still have a very strange and overly complicated definition of public body, which has, which then has another appendix against against what bodies have been excluded for for all sorts of reasons that that a minister might decide. We also have this strange thing under the FOI Act where. Um, whether something is a public body or not, the minister is ultimately responsible for deciding, which seems like an odd, uh, if possibly unconstitutional, uh, power to have to give a minister to have a, to be the ultimate arbiter of what a public body is under the Act. I think there, there's lots of positives in it. There's some negatives in it, and I think hopefully over the next five five to ten years we can see further improvements. Now, before right to know came about, and uh, during your time with the story.ie. Possibly the most significant story you were involved in was getting access to information from NAMA and Anglo-Irish Bank under a law that was obscure to most people until then, a law which was not the Freedom of Information Act. When Brian Lenhin was setting up the, uh, the National Asset Management Agency back in, in 2009, he, was, he, was, he decided uh, not to place the, uh, the, the body under the FOI Act, uh, such as it was, because he argued that that because NAMA was going to be a commercial vehicle and a commercial entity, um, that it shouldn't be subject to to a requesting regime under the previous FOI Act. So he decided, you know, we're not going to make it a body. And at the time, under the old Act, it was up to the minister to decide what or was not a public body uh, in in totality. They had no public body definition under the old Act, really. It was just basically, this is a list of public bodies that are subject to the Act, and this is a list of public bodies that aren't. Uh, so he chose not to put NAM under the Act. So when I was researching this issue uh, towards the end of 2009, early 2010, uh, I looked up this other uh, st- uh, statute, which is the um, the Access to Information on the Environment Regulations uh, 2007. And when I read the regulations, I kind of I read it and I said, well, this law, while it's while it's limited to environmental information, uh, while broadly defined, it is something that seems to countenance that something like NAMA and Anglo-Irish Bank, because it had just been nationalised, uh, would be covered by this uh, legislation. So I decided to send requests to Anglo-Irish Bank and NAMA seeking um, what I would argue would to be environmental information. So it was really that FOI was not, was not an option. Um, we couldn't use FOI. And uh, NAMA uh, was, our, we would argue, subject to this other law. And they made the somewhat surprising argument that they were not a public authority. Yeah, so both Anglo and uh, and NAMA replied under the under those regulations and said that uh, our understanding of the law was incorrect and that NAMA and and Anglo were not public bodies for the purposes of of those regulations. That ended up being a, a process uh, with the commissioner of a, a, a lot of submissions, and the commissioner ultimately ruled 
uh, 18 months after the request went in, in our favour. It went to the High Court uh, the following year. Um, and then judgment came in early 2013, and that was under uh, Colin McGuckig. And that judgment uh, also found in our favour. It did involve other issues of law around um, the powers of the court, the High Court, to, to vary or remit decisions of the commissioner and various other, for legal nerds, quite interesting stuff. And also, when NAM ultimately uh, lost on that, on that ruling, they appealed. And then we ended up in the Supreme Court in front of, of five judges in, uh, in 2014, and ultimately a ruling in 2015, uh, while our case was going through the courts, Another case uh, came to the Court of Justice uh, called Fish Legal. And in that case, the Court of Justice had ruled uh, on a similar issue. And they had ruled that um, any any body that the state establishes and that it alone can dissolve is a de facto public body, which obviously Nama would be. But O'Donnell did say that if that case had not happened, he would have had to refer our case to the Court of Justice as well. Um, so we ultimately, the, the case was ultimately won, and Nama is a, is a public body for the purposes of of the directive and of the regulations, but it took us five years, which in itself is a complete breach of the Aarhus Convention because under the convention, you're, you're supposed to have a timely access to justice, which in this case we didn't get. To go back to something you spoke about earlier and the changes introduced in the Freedom of Information Act in 2014, do you think there has been a change in practice by government agencies in dealing with requests under the legislation? Just going on my own experience, which is limited and anecdotal, around the time that legislation came in, it seemed to me that there was certainly in a lot of government agencies a different approach to dealing with requests. I think I think you're right. I think to some extent an approach an approach has been uh, taken either, you know, uh, uh, by just a reaction almost. I'm I'm getting a lot of experience now under the Act because I'm filing requests for similar information from lots of public bodies simultaneously. And I'm getting a reasonably good read on how different bodies are, are uh, reacting to specific types of requests. There's almost a default refusal. Um, in other words, previously what might have happened was that they might, uh, they might give you certain things and then and exclude other things that you then have to go to internal review with. To some extent, I've noticed a pattern whereby refusers are just coming in by default because then they're almost kicking it to touch that you have to go to the internal review stage. I've heard, and then, I've heard a number of people uh, on, we'll say, your side of the fence using the phrase uh, refuse early and refuse often when, when it comes to decisions. Yeah, like yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's certainly anecdotal. It's, it's unfortunately often t- still too much of a kind of an, a war of attrition rather than simply a, a requesting mechanism. Um, and I think this is unfortunate. You see Right to Know being a long-term project, a 10 to 15-year project. What do you think in 10 or 15 years' time, what would be mission accomplished for Right to Know? I, I think there's a, lot of inter, there's a lot of interrelated problems. I'd like, uh, I'd like the FOI law itself to improve, so Right to Know will have to begin at some point engaging in, in advocacy and lobbying uh, to improve legislation. And this is not just in relation to the FOI Act itself. It's it's also obviously the, the AIE regulations and it's the Reads Public Centre Information and it's open data and it's proactive publication and it's other things that are related to like access to court documents, uh, access to affidavits that have been used in open court, access to court filings, access to... There's a whole layer uh, of information that is published to some extent. There's 
there's information commissioners' decisions themselves, which can be quite hard to find on the commissioner's own website, or it's workplace relations commission's uh, uh, website that can, sometimes can be hard to use. There, in other words, there's an information layer that exists that that the government has control of, that to some extent needs to be liberated, um, and that can be done through multiple mechanisms, including advocacy and lobbying, including. Uh, Possibly litigation that if you believe that the, the, the that a state body is in breach of its of its uh, obligations under law that you pursue that issue uh, uh, through a commissioner appeal possibly and subsequently through uh, through court appeals and also there's there's the there's the building up of an understanding of the rights of citizens in general um, and in trying to engender a culture of of citizen participation because too often we kind of give platitudes towards uh, active citizenship. I think active citizenship is very important uh, because it helps it helps educate the public about what exactly government is and how exactly their taxes are spent, how decisions are made. And if you can in- increase that that culture of of uh, engagement between citizens and the state, I think FOI and access to information in general is one of the best mechanisms that exists to do that. And I think if if in ten to fifteen years time that there's a greater understanding among the public about their rights are and how to exert them and vindicate them. And also that the framework in which that exists, which is the laws that exist, the culture that exists on the public, on the public sector side, that all of those things have improved and that we have a greater understanding of, of uh, everything that's going on in our, in our little island nation, that that's, that's what I see as, as indicators of success. Well, it certainly is a noble and worthwhile cause uh, we didn't get time to talk about all the other hats that I referred to <laughs> and all the other organisations and interesting initiatives you're involved in. But uh, best of luck with Right to Know and thank you for joining me. Thanks, mate. Thank you again for joining me. And once again, I ask you to please stay tuned. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or by using the RSS feed on the website adventuresininformation.com where you can also listen to episodes directly. All comments or questions are welcome on the site. And indeed, some great questions and suggestions have already been aired on Twitter and Facebook, so keep them coming. I would appreciate anyone liking the podcast page on facebook.com slash adventures in information or following on Twitter at adventures ii, but particularly by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. I hope you'll join me and my next guest on next time on Adventures in Information.